turn to Matthew 15. There's that commercial, they've done variations on it. They have the Vikings, they have all these different scenes and it's kind of funny and it's that one for Capital One and they always ask, what's in your wallet? That's the question they always ask. And so what they're trying to do in raising that question, they're trying to get you to think about, is your wallet contain financial security and purchase power, whether the credit cards you have in there or how much cash you have. So what they're trying to say is don't be caught short. Capital One is the card, get it. Make sure that's in your wallet. But they're asking the question, what's in your wallet? And we're gonna to see today, and what we're gonna look at, these verses that Jesus is asking, not what's in your wallet, but he's asking what's in your heart. And that's the title of the message today. He's wanting us to examine it, he's wanting us to check it out, and not to be caught short, just like your wallet. Open it up and see what's in your heart instead of what's in your wallet. So let's look beginning Chapter 15, we'll read the first 20 verses. And it says there, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Well, why do you, why do you yourselves, is really what it is in the Greek, also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and... He who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, that he need not honor his father or mother. Thus, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. And when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. And then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. There are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. And then Peter answered and said to him, well, explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, are you still also without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So what we just read there in those few verses in Matthew is what is the essential nature of what it means to be a Christian. Because is a Christian someone who just observes these external traditions and forms? I did that as a Catholic. They had all kinds of external traditions and forms. And I was a Catholic in good standing for a while anyways. You know, you do your bowing. You do your kneeling. You'd say your quick prayer before dinner as a Catholic. Bless the Lord. And he's about to see my bounty of Christ the Lord. Amen. I mean, my grandfather did that religiously at every meal. I mean, that's kind of what you did. You went to Mass every Sunday. But my wallet, so to speak, was empty. It was not filled with a love for God at all. It was just all externalism. 
Christianity is essentially and primarily a heart religion, and that's what makes it different from all other religions. Because all other religions, only God can change a heart. I mean, that's what the Bible says. Supernaturally, by the Holy Spirit, there is no other way through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross, that being applied to us by the Holy Spirit through conviction and repentance. There is no other way a heart can be changed. No other religion can change a heart. So it doesn't happen, and most of them, they'll have you praying more, fasting on holy days, doing things to gain favor with God. But only the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ can touch people's lives at the core of their being. It's a supernatural work by the Spirit of God, and there is only one God that can do that. Mark Dever said this. He says, you can put a sword to someone's throat and make him at least a sufficiently good Muslim. And that's what they do. They just don't want to die. But he said this. He says, I cannot put a sword to someone's throat and make him a Christian. So we're not going to make ourselves, our children, we're not going to make some outsider, some sinner that we meet out there. We're not going to make them a Christian by threats, are we? I mean, only the Spirit of God can deal and actually regenerate a heart, which is what they need. That's the only way you're going to have a desire to do the things of God. So at this point in the gospel that we're reading here in Matthew Jesus has created quite a stir in Israel with all his teaching and his miracles. And, you know, if you're there in 15.1, just look back at the last verse of chapter 14. You know, these big crowds are gathering around him. And look what it says. It says, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch what? The hem of his garment. That's where that lady got that idea. And look what it says. As many as did just that, touched it, were made what? Perfectly well. Anyone drawing crowds like that, doing the things he's doing, having the influence he's having through his teaching, through his healing, through his miracles, that's going to draw the attention of headquarters. And headquarters was where? Headquarters was Jerusalem. And the fat cats that run Jerusalem are whom? They were in Jerusalem and the temple. It's described in the Pharisees. We have them coming. Here they are coming in chapter 1. They're coming to test him, to question him. They want to see what he's all about. But I'd like to say this. We need to understand a little something about the Pharisees because we have them labeled as the bad guys and, you know, kind of almost have a devil's mask on them. But if we understand what happened to them, what happened to them, we can understand ourselves and also the danger, I would say, that we have to guard against because... The Pharisees had a good start, or at least it seemed like they did, because their motivation was to see the Lord's people that he had promised be brought back to Israel. And they wanted to see deliverance from Rome's oppression, and so they could sacrifice and live freely. And they felt the only way that could happen, they thought the thing that was hindering that was people had to return to holiness, to a life of holiness, purity and separation from sin. And that was their goal. That was their motivation. And let me say this. That should be ours, too, because the Bible is clear. The Bible, Jesus and Paul teach that we should be separate. That's what it teaches. We're supposed to be a separate people. That means we're different from other people. That means they're not going to like things we do, and we're going to have to take stands that are unpopular. So if you would, put something there in Matthew and turn over. I mean, we've read it before. It's not a new scripture, but I want us to look at it in light of what we're saying. 2 Corinthians 6. There is a call on our lives to be separate. 
So we look in 2 Corinthians 6 and beginning in verse 16, we'll read down through the first verse in chapter 7. And Paul writes to the Corinthians there, he says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. We talked about that last week. Temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. He says, therefore, because of that, because you want to experience that, what does he say? Therefore, come out from among them and be separate. Says who? Says SCA? I mean, that's what the Lord says, right? It says, do not touch what is unclean. Don't touch it. And he says, then I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. He says, verse 7, therefore, having promises like that, that God will be our father and he'll walk with us, he says, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. So the issue is the heart, isn't it? Why we do what we do. What I'm saying is that the issue is not being separate and holy and different. The issue is why do you do it? What's your heart motivation? Now this evangelist Michael Green's got a commentary on Matthew and he says this in this part on Matthew. He says, what separates the Pharisees from Jesus? He's asking the question, what's the difference between them and him? Because they're both preaching a message of holiness and separation. Both believe God has to be worshipped, but here was the Pharisees' response to this passion, he says, were for detailed precision in worship. And for Jesus, it wasn't so much he's all this detailed precision. It's not that he's against that. But his thing is the worship should come from loving obedience, was his emphasis, resulting in an intimate relationship with God where we can call him Abba, dear Father. He went on to say, for the Pharisees, it was possible to honor God if the services were properly rendered. In other words, you did your praying, you did your fasting, I did all these things. That's what you're presenting to the Lord. I'm not like these other people. They're saying that would make you acceptable to God. But Jesus says it's impossible that those things are going to do anything unless the people's hearts were turned to God. And they're doing it for that reason. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount, especially chapter 6. Why do we pray, fast, and give? He says, it's not like them to be seen. No, the whole reason is so your heavenly Father will be pleased with what you do, not for any other reason. And it says then you'll be blessed. You'll have a blessed life. That's what's promised in the Sermon on the Mount. So these Pharisees, they began by calling the Jewish people back to holiness. Now, the, the name Pharisee itself means separated one. When they started... Israel was called God's people. And back at that time, the reason this is such an urgent movement that started is God's people, Israel at the time, they were living like the world. So there really was a need. And the initial motive was to call them back to a spiritual life devoted to God and His holiness. And I'm saying there's nothing wrong with that. We don't have to apologize for that. We just That's why it had us read 2 Corinthians 6. But here is the danger The great danger, and here's the snare that they fell into, is when your heart is either unchanged, which theirs were. They were unregenerate leaders trying to promote holiness. So when a person's heart is unchanged or it's dead or it's not changing, then that spiritual motivation will begin, the right spiritual motivation, it'll begin to disappear. Yet what happens is the structure or the form will stay in place. And that's what happens, and that's the danger. The Salvation Army, anybody that's read about them, it's very interesting to read their history and how they began and where they've ended up. Great beginnings. 
And they had people coming in there that were truly godly saints. And their motivation was, I mean, they were born again. They had been delivered, most of them, from a bad background. And they wanted to share that with others. They wanted to see sinners saved and brought into a loving relationship with God. William Booth, the founder, and his wife, and most of his children, they would fast, they would pray, and they would go out in the streets and preach their hearts out. And the accounts I've read, there was tremendous anointings on the work they did. Tremendous anointings of the Spirit of God. And they gave their lives 100% to God and the salvation of the lost. Their main targets were prostitutes, drunks, the rejects of society. They're like, we'll bring them in. That's who they would preach to. They'd preach to anybody. But those are the ones that they preached to. That was their first concern, changed hearts, number one, preaching the gospel. But their second concern was this, their needs. So they'd give these people generously food, shelter, clothing, because a lot of these prostitutes had nothing. That's why they're being prostitutes. They said, well, we'll give you food and get you through, and we'll get you a job. We'll clean you up. You drunk, you haven't had work in a while. We'll get you cleaned up, help you out. And that's what they did. They met needs, too. They'd do it for the unsaved. But now their organization, everything's reversed. They're primarily what? A relief organization with no gospel. Now, there's some people that are trying to bring the Salvation Army back to bring in the gospel into their message. But everything's upside down now, I'm telling you. I've been on their website a few years back because I went and rang their bell. Mr. Wiley said, would you ring the bell? I said, I'll tell you, I'll ring the bell under one condition. First, I want to see where does this money go? Well, they do try to find needy families. And the second one was, can I hand out tracts and witness to people while I do it? And he's like, I could care less what you do. We just don't have people to ring the bell. So I rang the bell, and that's what I did. I handed out tracts. I thought, this is the Salvation Army. <laughs> I was just a temporary recruit. Well, let me tell you this. I met this guy. I won't get into the whole story, but it's somebody we had just been talking about. Him. He was on an Israeli trip with me and Lisa, and me and him kind of became friends. And I hadn't seen him in a while. I'm over with John over in the Baptist bookstore over there at Southern. And uh, he heard my voice. He goes, you have a very distinguishable voice. I'm like, I know. I'm sorry. It's loud and whatever, probably obnoxious. But anyways, he came over and he says, do you remember? I'm like, man, do I remember you? Yeah. So I asked him, what has he been up to? Because he'd moved out to California. He goes, well, I moved to St. Louis. He's uh, the dean of a theology department. But he's also filling in as a pastor, an interim pastor, where churches will lose their pastor and they have somebody come in and speak temporarily until they get another one. And he said he did that all over the region around St. Louis. And he goes, I got a good feel for St. Louis. And I said, I'm just curious, what did you find? Here's what he told me. I didn't tell him anything about anything going on here or anywhere else. He said, well, what I found is they'd ask me to come. It'd be this big, beautiful church on the outside that would hold about a thousand people. And he says, and what I would find is there are 30 people in the church, old people. He goes, the 30 and 40 year old group have disappeared. They're not there anymore. And he said, and the older people are sitting there depressed. And I'm like, that sounds familiar. I'm saying this is happening everywhere. And I said, what do you find with the 30 and 40 years? Why have they disappeared? He goes, because they've got this energy. They got this zeal. They want to go out and get involved in helping people. He said, here's the problem with that. As he says, what I'm seeing is they're not doing it with the gospel. Like I said, I'm just listening. And he says, we need to connect the gospel with what's going on there. So it's a Salvation Army problem. I mean, there's nothing wrong with good works, but if the gospel's not with it, that's not what the church is called to do. 
And actually, for those of you that are informed, there was a movement that came and has gone called the Emerging Church Movement. Still, its remnants are around, and its big thing is get out and help. It's like the old hippie movement. Come in my house is open to you, and just come and eat my food and stay the night and whatever all else you want to do. Just one big happy family. But through that movement, doctrine is downplayed. Doctrine is like, oh, uh, we're not going to do that because then people don't want to stay in your house when you start talking about that. And it's just going to ruin all the love. And on and on. That's the problem I have with that. I don't have problems that you know, we could show more love, right? You never can do too much of that in helping people out. But if you're not bringing in the gospel, especially to the unregenerate, what are you doing for them? That's their biggest need. Sometimes you can open a door to witness to them through meeting their needs, but that's still, you're looking for the opportunity to share and not the gospel about Jesus loves you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is they need to see they're a sinner with a wicked heart and they need to turn from their sins or they're going to perish in hell. And those are words that nobody wants to say anymore. Fear, hell, judgment. Oh, man, shut me down. Like I was telling somebody the other night, go watch some of the old Billy Graham classic sermons that were being preached in the 70s. You know why a lot of people came to the Lord in the 70s, 80s, and through those years? Because they only had three stations on TV back then. And when he would come on on prime time, that's what you would watch, at least part of it. And I did. I was as wicked as they came. I'd still watch Billy Graham because he's so eloquent. But I'm telling you, there were, I knew I was a sinner because of Billy. I knew if the things I did were wrong because he preached the law. I knew if I didn't repent, I was going to go to hell. I knew all that. And most of us did. That's not for us right now for whatever reason. And that message is missing now. You're not going to get that with a lot of these, I could name some names. All you're going to get is this positive stuff all the time. There is no gospel message being. I'm like, what in the world? Anyways, got off on that tangent. So what we have here going on is we have to look in our own wallets because we can't do anything. I'm not preaching to the church out there. Nobody cares about me. They're not listening to me. We have to look in our own wallets, our own church here. Now, our church, I believe, it began because of a desire to get back to what true Christianity is. It was for me. I lived in that dead system I was in. I hated it. I'm like, there's no life here. There's no truth being preached. But we came back. I mean, this is the reason I'm here. I'm not into a place or whatever. It's just where the word of God was not compromised and it was believed. And that's where I wanted to be. And there was life in that message. The book of Acts. We, for the most part, started off here. I felt for the most part, it's never 100% in any church. I felt like most of the people that came here were sold out to God. He had our hearts. And people came here, I think, because they were hungry for the truth. And we prayed and we trusted him only. That's what we were taught. That's what we were learning to do and to grow in that trust. And we desired to obey him from the heart. At least I did. It's like, tell me what I need to do so I can follow the Lord. That's what I want to do. I'm not living in the past, trust me. But I'm saying as a result, when we started, we experienced his presence, his anointing in our services and in our lives. And God's spirit, I would say, was manifested in tangible ways here. And our fellowship was natural. Nobody's complaining about a lack of fellowship. We just got together. It wasn't a problem. Didn't need programs. Never did have programs, and they've never worked great here as it is. But over time, what happens is you can still have the truth. You can still have, quote, unquote, the word, but it can become a lifeless shell. I would say without the Spirit of God. And when that happens, it becomes not just a lifeless shell. It becomes a dungeon in chains. 
When you're not filled with the Spirit and living this gospel and sharing this gospel and experiencing this gospel, it will be bondage to anyone. That's the way it is. And that is what revival is all about. And most people don't. If you take the time to read books on revival, there is one thing that is generally constant. And that is a lot of these places, like over in Scotland, their preaching was very orthodox. And what I mean by that, it was right down the line on what it ought to be. There wasn't error being preached. Nothing wrong with the order of the service. They weren't over there flag-waving, dramas, dogs barking, all that crazy stuff you see now. But things were dead. No life. But when revival came, guess what? Life came. And that's what happens. And it always comes as a result of what? Prayer. You want to shut down a revival? Shut down prayer. That's the way it works. It always has come from prayer. And when that would happen, when that prayer would take place and God was moving on people's hearts, then power would fill what was once dead. And these preachers that they were preaching fine, all of a sudden, bam, there's an anointing on them because the anointing, anybody that preaches, doesn't come from themselves, does it? It comes through the people, I believe, through their prayers and God's anointing. Everything that's happening there, the anointing on the preacher just blesses the people. It's not so he can be impressive, right? It's to feed God's sheep. And man, people get their hearts turned back to God in deep repentance. They'd realize we've been living further from him than we ever realized. And they would turn back. His spirit would fall on those groups. I mean, in power. I got the books if anybody ever wants to read them. These aren't even necessarily charismatic people. It's just God just poured out his spirit on these group of people. And there would be an awe there, a supernatural awe over these huge crowds that came to hear this preaching. People crying, truly being brought to the Lord and staying that way. And I'm telling you, this empty zeal, whatever, the, everything's right. You read Revelation 2 with the church of Ephesus. They were careful about their doctrine. He's like, yeah, these apostles came in here preaching something that wasn't right. You checked them out, and you wouldn't receive anything from them. But nevertheless, there's a problem there, wasn't it? It's a heart problem with Ephesus. He says, you've left your first love. You don't have that love for me that you once had. You've got the outward zeal for the word, but not that real love for me. That was his complaint. So like I said, the key is the heart. And the Pharisees had a heart problem. Their heart was dead, as I said, and it affected how they lived their lives. That dead heart affected how they lived their lives and how they instructed others. And Jesus had his most severe rebukes for them. He did. And one of them's right here. If you'll look there, turn back to Matthew 15. Look what he says to them and move ahead to verses 12 and 13. Look what he's on their case. He says, Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? That he's like, Oh, we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to offend him. No, we don't want to do that. He, what did he say? He says, Every plant which my heavenly Father hasn't planted, it's going to be uprooted. That's a message of judgment. That's not nice words, are they? Let them alone, he says. Let them alone. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. If the blind leads the blind, he says, both will fall into the ditch. And so he's warning his disciples. What? He's like, I don't want you following those people. Leave them alone. You don't need to try to convince them. They're not going to be convinced. At that point, you're casting your pearls before the swine. Now, we know some of the Pharisees did repent. He's not pronouncing judgment on the Greek. But as a whole, they didn't. As a system, they didn't. As a belief, the way they believe, they didn't repent as a whole. And he says, you not only don't want to follow them, you don't want to be like them. Because 
or Matthew 15, back in Matthew chapter 5, he says this, unless your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, go far beyond, surpass. If your righteousness doesn't far surpass theirs, and they lived holy lives, the people were impressed with them. He says this, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Never. So do we want to enter heaven? That's the question. The Jesus thing is don't let external obedience replace a heart of love for him. That's the warning he's given because that's what he goes on to say. They would say, we've never killed anybody. I've never cheated on my wife once. He goes, you have because you're wicked hard. You cheated all the time and you hate people and despise them and look down on them, have contempt for them. He says, no, that's, this is where he's dealing with this at, right? He's dealing with me anyways, if nobody else. We're saying the Lord's concern is not with the external show, but with heart obedience. And like I said, the Pharisees were totally consumed with their external practice. So they're watching the disciples of Jesus. And they're saying to themselves, are these guys really going to eat without washing their hands? Now look, they're not concerned with hygiene. It's not like your mom. I mean, my mom would always, boys, did you wash your hands before you came to the table? I mean, yes, mom, we did. <laughs> we lie through our teeth. <laughs> Whatever. That's not their concern. Their concern is what's ritual purity. Are you right before God? And you had to have your hands clean as far as they were concerned to do that. There wasn't any law for the common person that they had to wash their hands and feet and all that stuff. That was only in the Old Testament in Exodus 30 for the priest they had to wash their hands and their feet before they offered the burnt sacrifice. But even for them, there's nothing about just eating an everyday meal. I mean, it's a good idea to wash your hands, okay? I'm not saying that, but that's not what they're after here. So where did they get this critical policy, this, this criticism, this policy they had? Well, it's right here. If you look in verse 2, what do they say? They say, why do your disciples transgress what? The tradition of the elders. And the tradition of the elders, this complex set of rules, hundreds upon hundreds of them, that they would take the law and say, okay, well, here's how it applies to, I mean, they would come up with every single possible situation you could have in life. And they just stretch it beyond what it was ever intended to mean. So they're saying because that's based on the law, all these externals, they were oral for a while, and then they wrote them down in the second century. It's called the Mishnah. But they said, hey, because it came from the law, you are just as required to obey that as you are Moses' law. They said there's no difference. It's the way it should be. We laugh at them. We think that's crazy that you would sit there and watch how somebody washes their hands because they had the way you had to hold your hands, the amount of water you poured, where you got. I mean, crazy stuff. We think, well, that's crazy. But we need to understand they looked at it as Maybe they were insincere and nuts about coming up with this, but they thought that's a way they could show their devotion to God in just an everyday practice of washing your hands. That's what they thought. But the problem was they became so consumed with all these little details and that that's what made you right with God, these traditions that they neglected. That was Jesus' criticism of them. You're so consumed with all this minutia, you've neglected what really matters, what really matters to God. And that, he said, is justice, like we heard the other night. It's doing what is right. What is the right thing? Or mercy, showing loyal love to other people. Or faith, trusting God. All these things, Jesus says, what really matters are what? Matters of the heart. Now, a lot of times, your heart is going to display itself in what you do, what you say, what you eat, what you wear, isn't it? 
but it's got to be in the heart. And that was what consumed them, these externals, consumed with outward conformity to their minutia. And so look what he says, what they say, why do your disciples transgress your tradition? They don't wash their hands when they eat bread. And they could care less about the inward condition of the disciples' heart. They're passing judgment on them without knowing what their inward condition is. Also, his problem Jesus has with this is, in doing that, you're showing no regard for the authority of God's word. And that's what his answer is to them. He says in verse 3, he answered and said to them, Well, why do you yourselves also transgress not just traditions, but the commandment of God because of your tradition. They're disobeying what the Lord of God had clearly taught because Jesus says in verse 4, for God commanded, God commanded, this is no tradition of men, saying, honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. The Word of God says you've got to honor your parents. So a man or a, I'd say even a daughter with elderly parents in the fifth commandment, when God says, honor your father and mother, that includes taking care of them. In all respects, honoring them means if they have a financial need they can't meet. I would say if your dad got hurt and couldn't work, and you were a young Christian man that had a really good job, and he's having trouble paying his rent, I would say you've got an obligation to help him out. I'd be like, oh, dad, you're on your own. I got my family and my job over here. That's crazy. That's not honoring your parents or they need help with doing certain things. Honoring your parents doesn't just mean I'm not going to say anything bad about them. That's included too, though. But it's helping them out financially. That's what it would have been. And this tradition, Jesus is saying, that's overruled all that. You've dedicated your money to God, and it's his. And your parents, they can't touch it. That was what that Corban, that law they did, that's what it says. <laughs> no longer have a right to it. And Jesus is basically saying, you all... How can you do that? How can you violate that clear commandment of God? Just, we all know why, just so they could line their pockets. That's all they're after, because he called them covetous in other places, and buddy, that really got them upset, because that was really the problem with their heart, covetous hearts. So how does that work for us about these traditions? We just passed the old jolly yuletide season here, Christmas. Just happened. Huge event in almost every church now is the way it is. This will be the most I've said about Christmas in three years. I haven't said three words about Christmas since I've been here because it's really just not a major issue with me in that sense. And here's the reason. I think the world and the church has a bigger issue than Christmas myself. And a sinner especially. I mean, I never go out and make a big issue out of Christmas with sinners. It's like, why are they going to do that? Their heart needs to be changed before they could even be open to it at all. If they didn't get talked out of it by somebody else in a church. Let me ask everybody here. Is our conviction that we have, most people in this church have, I would assume. Is our conviction about Christmas, is it wrong? Are we legalistic to say we don't celebrate Christmas? It's pretty much corporate, but it's on an individual level too, isn't it? Is that a legalistic thing to say? And I would say... The Christmas custom brought into the Protestant church, because it was a Catholic thing from way back. You wouldn't find Christmas trees and celebrations of Christmas in Baptist and most Protestant churches until, I would say, recent history, fairly recent. And that whole thing is proven Jesus' point that he's making here. This whole thing about Christmas. So if you put something there and turn back to Jeremiah 10, because we haven't read this in a while, but look at what it says in Jeremiah 10. 
in verse 1, he says, Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vain or futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workman with an axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree. They cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. Now, that doesn't speak about decorating a Christmas tree. I don't know how much clearer the Bible could get about that. That word custom there in verse 3 for the customs of the people are futile or empty. That means a firmly established custom, which is only another way of saying what? A tradition. And God says what in verse 2? Do not learn the way, the path they take of whom? The Gentiles, the pagans. I can read guys today that are mainstream evangelical leaders. I just read one the other day. They will explain the whole origin of Christmas and they will say, yeah, we know that is all pagan. It's all whatever. But for some reason, that doesn't matter today, even though the same pagan things are happening. And the fact is, Christmas is a pagan holiday. It's the feast of Saturnalia. No matter how you want to dress it up, it's the worship of the sun god. And I'm saying that is idolatry brought into the church. And so if you want to bring in the simple gospel, and I've heard this too many times in three years, that why do we have to get into all this stuff at our church? Why can't we just love God and love others? I'm like, that is so sophomoric, such a simplistic attitude. So if you want to say, well, Acts 15 only had four requirements, one of the requirements was there are not to offer things to idols, things offered to idol, to abstain from that, which means to stop. Christmas is idolatry in its biggest form. That's what it's all about. Like I said, the Catholics brought it in. That's a pagan church. Totally pagan. It's the biggest cult there is. Tom Hamilton used to say that. I've been involved in it. You know what they're about. I'm not saying all the people there. I'm saying that system is the most cultish pagan system there is. It's antichrist. If you don't know, I'll give you plenty of books you can read. That's the way it is. There is no joining up with Catholicism and the Catholics. It's the truth, I'm sorry. My thing is, if you took Christmas and you took all the paganism out of it, the trees, the ornaments, the gift giving, the yuletide, Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, Santa, and you could go on and on and on. You took all of that out of it. And really the biggest thing is it's a party day. It's a party day for the world. As a Catholic, you go to Midnight Mass, there was always the drunks there that were disrupting it. Because it's a party. Now you take all of that out of it and say it's no longer ever going to happen, and you tell me how many people in or out of the church would even still care about it at all. So if somebody's going to tell me, oh, I just worship Jesus and his birth and all, I'm saying that's fine. i got no problem. i got no problem anyways, really. But if somebody's going to tell me, well, as a Christian, I don't do any of those things. All we do is we read the Christmas story and we tell the children about that. I'm saying, i got a problem. I'm not hung up. We were on vacation at Christmas one time. We went to a Reformed Baptist church. I thought, I know how they are. There was no Christmas tree in there. They read a text that is traditionally considered a Christmas text, but they just taught what it said. They didn't make anything pagan out of it. It was a great message. I'm not hung up on all this. I'm not giving up my conviction either. 
You're not going to find me and my family, at least as far as I'm concerned, sneaking a tree up and doing all this and somehow feeling like I have to apologize for my conviction because I would say the church has allowed this tradition to take over. The commandment of God, I think, is pretty clear. And that's why I had his turn there in Jeremiah 10. Learn not the customs, the ways of the Gentiles. We're not to do that. That's a command. Now, if you think it's okay to do all the demonic occult things that's involved in the worship of Saturnalia, then what can I say? <laughs> I've said all I'm going to say right there. Really, is that legalism? Now, it's legalism if you look down your nose on everybody that does it and you despise them and all that and you think it somehow makes you righteous because you don't and they do. I don't teach my kids that. I don't do that. I don't think that's right, is it? Because I do think there are people that don't know better and they sincerely celebrate Christmas to the Lord. They would think it would be wrong not to. They sincerely think, and there then I would say, okay, for them at that point, I think Romans 14 enters in. But I couldn't do that because I know the truth. That's no more than I think there are saved people that do not speak in tongues. But for me to say the baptism of the Holy Spirit's not the evidence, it's not the power that you need, it's not what the Bible teaches, that would be bad news for me. It would be. That'd be blaspheming. That'd be turning my back on what I know is true, not only from the Word, but from my experience. And how people can do that, and I know people from here have done that, join churches that are anti-charismatic. I mean, that's not right. So it's one thing if somebody doesn't know, and that's a whole other ballgame. I'm not questioning anybody's Christianity because they don't speak in tongues. Never have. But that's what we're about here, right? I don't know why you'd want to be here if you don't want to trust God for finances, healing. There's other places to go where they would preach enough of a message like ours that you'd be more happy. That's why I came here, because it's like believers that believe, like I said, believe the Bible for what it says. And I believe that's what we've heard for 30-some years. Jesus, back to Matthew 15, he confronts the Pharisees here about their traditions. And he doesn't have a very polite way of dealing with them. In verse 7, he calls them what? He calls them hypocrites. Look in verse 7, hypocrites. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth, honor me with their lips, but their heart, back to the heart, is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he's calling them hypocrites, play actors. It's somebody who wears a mask to hide their true identity. That's what happens in Hollywood. <laughs> Rock Hudson. He was a man's man. The women loved him. And on the screen, he would appear to love women. But all that was was a mask because in reality it came out he was a homosexual that whole time and had a boyfriend. That's the reality. So he wore a mask in the movies, but that wasn't his heart. And that's what that hypocrite's all about. It's saying you're wearing a mask. Jesus says, well, did Isaiah prophesy concerning you? You hypocrites. Done a beautiful job of describing you people. He says, you hold a mask up. He's saying to the Pharisees, we're guilty of this. Nobody's not guilty. We're all guilty at one time or another, right? You hold a mask up. It looks sincere, like you have this loving devotion to God. The prayers you pray, the words you speak, the Bible you quote, even the testimonies you give. But your heart, he's telling them, your heart, it's our hearts. That's the problem. He's saying that mask you wear is covering the true story. He says, your heart is far from me. You're not giving that appearance, but it really is, and God knows that. We're not fooling him on that. 
far from me, at a distance, he's saying, a great way off. I don't know if that convicts you, but it convicts me big time. <laughs> i got to preach it. It really does. Here, God wants us to be sincere in our love and devotion to him, doesn't he? Isn't that what he wants? Here's what all he wants. He wants us to treat him like we would want to be treated, with sincerity. Isn't that what he's saying through all this? So nobody likes someone who comes and seems like they're being sincere to you. Oh, you look so nice. How great you are. Oh, I love you. And you know all along, or they do all up, they don't mean a word of it. Nobody likes that, do they? And God wants our love to go beyond our lips. Isn't that what he says there? He says, you honor me with your lips, but it ends there. Their heart, he says, is far from me. So the Pharisees' devotion to God began and ended with their lips because their heart wasn't in it at all. And he says, that's vanity to worship me that way. That's what he says. Empty, useless is what vanity means. No purpose, no benefit from it to God or you when that's the condition. Here's what God's telling us today. He doesn't want us to be hypocrites. All he wants is our hearts. And that is Proverbs 23, 26. My son, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. And that's the order it's got to be. He doesn't say observe my ways and then I'll get your heart. That's not what the Lord says. He's got to be the heart first. Give me thine heart and then let your eyes observe my ways. That's what happens because the heart does what? It represents us. What makes us tick? Our desires, our will, our feelings. And what he's saying there is, give me your heart because when God has your heart, he has you, doesn't he? When you say about a girl that she's won his heart about a guy, it's all over then because he's hooked, right? They're as good as married. So when you say someone's got someone's heart, it's over on a, one of those relationships, isn't it? More or less. Because their heart's broken if it doesn't work out. And here's the other side of that, though. Once we've done that, once we've given God our heart, you know what we need to do? Protect it. Protect it. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil, and I would say the devil through religion, that's the big thing now, is working constantly, seeking to twist, pervert, and take our heart from God. That's what's going on. Proverbs 4.23, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. He says we need to keep it with all diligence, and it is hard work, I'm telling you, because you have things coming at you that may make sense, and you better check out. I mean, this is kind of this idea, this thought coming from, well, this makes sense. Maybe I've been this too much too long. It's not right. Keep thine heart with all diligence, hard work. And he says we have to keep it or guard it. And that's a word that means to watch over. Like a soldier has a prisoner. And they're saying, you need to guard this guy. Because if he gets away, or he's, it may be your life. And it's that way with the heart because it says out of it. If we don't keep our heart out of it is the source, the issue. The springs is what it means. You know, The spring is the source of water. And if you get the source contaminated, everything else is contaminated, right? So he says, out of it, we better keep and guard it because out of it are the issues of life. In other words, if we don't, we may be facing death in the end. We've got to obey the Lord and keep our hearts. Watch over it, one translation says. Watch over your heart with utmost care. 
like I said, when God has our hearts, obedience flows from that. If you would just turn over quickly to Romans chapter 6. When he has our hearts, then he'll have our obedience. Look in Romans 6, verse 17. Romans 6, 17. But God be thanked, Paul wrote, that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed how? From the heart, that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now, this is one time where I like the way the NIV translates that because I think it gives the sense of it. Look whatever version you have while I'm reading the NIV. The NIV says, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Claimed your allegiance. That's what the word in the Lord Jesus should be doing. We have an allegiance to it, not something we can just give up because somebody doesn't like it. Now, we have to hold on to the truth in love, don't we? Not be critical of others that aren't like us, but I'm saying you got to hold on to the truth. You don't want to let that go. So we're slaves of sin, he's saying. At one time we did what we wanted, but he says, thank God. When he got our hearts, we obeyed not because we had to, not because we were afraid to, but because we obeyed from the heart because we wanted to, the teaching that we heard. The reason is our allegiance is to God and his word. They're one and the same. There is no difference. And that is above all else. So that means if you're a Christian, a true Christian, you're saying your word is my delight, your word and what you say, I'm placing that above my father, my mother, my children, my spouse, even my own life. Isn't that Luke 14? Isn't that the requirement to be a Christian? And so when you start compromising for the sake of family relations, you got a problem. Because he said what? Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. And that's what everybody, can't we just be one big happy family? And Jesus said, no, you can't. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And divisions are going to be where? In your own household. Ask these people in these foreign Muslim countries what it's like. They got their relatives trying to kill them. Can't get work because they're different. Are we afraid to be different? We'll be different, and that'll bring persecution. It's not a set of rules. The New Testament is not a set of rules like the Pharisees had for every situation. We don't have a set of rules here for things, do we? Do we tell people what kind of cars they have to drive, car style, hair length? where you take a vacation, what food you eat, where you work. That would be legalism. That would be the Amish. I don't count anybody's buttons on their shirt or collared or not or going to get on them because they wore a short sleeve shirt to church, right? And those principles that we've been taught allow us to be led by the Spirit of God. And when God has your heart and the allegiance to his word, you'll seek to be guided by those principles in everything you do. And then they do become a law because the New Testament talks about the law of Christ. That's Galatians 6.2. And James twice talks about obeying the law, and he calls it the law of liberty, not bondage. James 2.12, James 1.25. So when we are led by the Spirit of God, guided by his word, and he has our heart, then guess what? It's not just this empty, dead, outward conformity, but obedience from a pure heart. And then here's what we have. It's not a matter of do you have a TV or do you not have a TV. That would be legalism. You can't have a TV or if you watch TV, you're going to hell. 
You know, I was telling my wife, as far as I know, David Wilkerson got rid of his TV way back with crossing his switchblade. I don't think he ever brought one back in his house. But I didn't see him laying down a law that if you have a TV, you're not right with God. That, for me, is not the issue. Now, I, like I said, it's probably a good idea not to have one. And I'm saying that. I got three in my house. There are some things worth watching on TV. I don't feel like I have to repent for watching the Weather Channel. I don't. Now, if I watch the Weather Channel four hours a day, I think I'd have to repent of that or wasting my time. But it's not a matter of do you have a TV or not. But the guiding principle is this. Psalm 101, verse 3, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. That's the principle, isn't it? So if you can sit there and watch a program that has got whatever on it and enjoy it, then you got a problem. It's not a matter that you got a TV, you got a heart problem. Isn't that really kind of what it is? So I'm going to say this, the question you need to ask is, is what I'm watching setting wicked things before my eyes? I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them. I hate it, David says, the work of them that turn aside. So it's not a rule. We don't have rules in here about how tight your clothes are, what the length of your skirt is, any of that stuff. It's a heart, though, when the principle is guiding that I want to be modest before God and other people. I don't want by what I wear to cause another brother, another sister, or anyone for that matter, in or out of the church, to stumble because of what I'm presenting before them. That's the principle. And that's the principle. How can you, with that principle, how do you wear skinny jeans as a Christian? How would you wear a bikini to a crowded swimming pool? How would you do that? I went to a thing where these people were getting all these awards. It was these girls. It was all their shorts, except with a few exceptions, were hiked all the way up to the lower part of their buns. I'm saying, that's not right. And tight as could be. You tell me how you justify that. That's not legalism to say that. I'm sorry. That's just wrong. That's not dictating anything but the truth. I'm telling you. When it's in the matter of the heart, it's not I'm at church, but I'd really rather be somewhere else. I'm just really not into this praise. My heart is really with playing games, going out to eat, work, relaxing, or really, I really want to get back on my cell phone. I just can't wait to get back on that. So a true heart is coming, wants to praise God for who he is, the things he's done in your life, right? Thankful, I want to tell others and sing with them. And so that's what happens. That's the way it should be, shouldn't it? You're doing things from the heart. You're guided by principles. So I would say this, despite what Jesus said to the Pharisee, God really does want us to wash our hands. All those things that were done in the Old Testament, they were types, a lot of them, and symbols that are just pointing to the New Testament full revelation. He wants purity in our heart, and it's symbolized by the hands. But he even still says that, James 4, 8. It says this, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Our hands represent what in the Bible? The works that come from our heart. And that's why they're spoken of together so many times. Your hands and your heart. Psalm 18, 20. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, has he recompensed me. Psalm 24, 4. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and combined with a pure heart.
And so that's what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? He's saying the condition of your hands, it's not this outward, you just washed your hands, but the works you do is going to show the condition of your heart. So back in Matthew 15, we read there again in verses 16 to the end, he says, are you still without understanding? Do you not understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. That's what defiles a man, he says. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. He says, those are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. He's saying it's not whether you touch a dead corpse. You know, it's not that you haven't washed your hands or whatever. It's what's in your heart that is going to defile you before God. That's the point. It's critical to see that none of these sins that Jesus mentions in those verses that we just read are mentioned by the Pharisees. They don't mention them as sins of the heart. You don't hear them talking about it in that way. They get mad at him when he does that. But that's what our Lord Jesus Christ cares about, our hearts and those things that he mentions there. He wants to remove them from our hearts. And David understood that. He got it. Because after that sin with Bathsheba, he says, I don't need to offer any more sacrifices. It's not more sacrifices I don't need to praise louder. I don't need to help build churches. He says, that's not what I need. He says, I need God. I need you to do heart surgery on me because I'm realizing through this, I am convicted to the core. You said, Nathan, I'm convicted to my heart. That's where my problem was. And he says this in Psalm 51. He says, you don't desire sacrifice. He says, or else I'd give it. You don't delight in burnt offering. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. He says, these, O God, you will not despise. So we're back to our initial question. What's in your heart? What's in my heart? Do we want the Lord Jesus in our heart ruling and reigning, communing, speaking, rebuking, and loving? Because that's what he'll do, and he'll do it a lot of times just as you take the time to read his word. Take the time to get quiet in prayer long enough to settle your mind down. And that's hard to do. It's hard for me to do. It's hard for me to get settled down and let the Lord start speaking to me. It really is. But that is the path to revival. It really is. Hearts fully committed to follow the Lord. So for you, it's probably different for everybody. What's that one thing that's keeping you from full commitment? And I'd say just cry out for his grace to allow you to draw nigh to him and renew your heart. To walk in holiness, not because you just want to fit in here, but because you want to be, as it said in 2 Corinthians 6, I want to walk with you as my father and experience your presence in my life because you can grant me that favor because there's nothing hindering it. Amen? Isn't that what we want? That's what I want. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, I just ask, Lord, that you'll continue to speak to all of our hearts, not just today, but throughout this week, throughout the rest of our lives, Lord, that we can know that you're asking us to give us your hearts, Lord, and everything else, once we do that, will fall in place. And we may still have to grow. We may still have to cry. We may still have hard times. We will. But Lord, you'll cause that growth to take place. You'll cause us to draw an eye to you, and you'll bless us. And in the end, you'll be able to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You followed me wherever I led you, wherever my voice said, even in when I had to correct you, you were willing to follow me and make changes. So I just ask you, Father, that you'll do that for all of us today.
And anyone in here that doesn't really know you and their heart really has never come to know you, I just ask you'll do that for them and cause them to give you their heart. Grant them repentance. And we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's worship the Lord. Let's sing, Change My Heart, O God. Change my heart, O God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, O God. May I be like you. Change my heart, O God. Change my heart, O God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. May I be like you. You are the potter. You are the potter. I am the clay. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. May I be like you. You are the potter. You are the potter. I am the clay. I am the clay. Mold me and make me. my heart, oh God, make it ever true, change my heart, oh God, may I be like you, may I be like you.